can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when we come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion, which is a a good listen. The first L is listening, and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning, but listening and learning and laughing. It's the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell. need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories. And tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Wyndham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 here in New Hampshire. Thanks to everyone watching and listening, and especially thanks to our studio audience. We're so glad you're here. So our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's diversity, personal and cultural, and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no ranking or scoring or judging. We truly believe that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that is why we're here. Our theme for tonight's show is Out on a Limb. We'll hear stories from five tellers, Jim Ryan, Erica Skoglund, Michael Lang, Kathy Wolf, and Tom Osberg. They each have a 10-minute limit for their story, and you'll be introduced to them by Pat Spaulding, our MC. Following the storytelling, we will also be having a storyteller interview, so stay tuned for that. But first, for the stories, let's welcome Pat up to tell you about our first teller. Thanks, everybody. It's great to see you this evening. A lot of happy, enthusiastic faces. Even on a beautiful summer night, so congratulations for coming. It means a lot to us. I, before I introduce our first teller, I just want to 
tell you the lineup of titles because I think it's a short story in itself. Grizzly bears can run really, really fast. Just to be safe, the music makers out on a limb in Tinicum Woods, I promise to be careful. Sounds pretty good, huh? <laughs> and it will be. Our first storyteller is Jim Ryan. He grew up in Boston and currently lives in Merrimack, Massachusetts. But his true home has always been New Hampshire. He works in healthcare during the day and is an artist by night. Self-taught, he mainly paints in oils. Jim is a bird watcher, a hiker, and a mountaineer. You can find some of his strikingly beautiful raptor photos, and I've, I've looked at the wonderful paintings. Uh-oh, I'm already disturbing. Um, online at jimryanart.net. Check it out, J-I-M-R-Y-A-N-A-R-T.net. Jim's motto is be kind, make art, and seek adventure. And now, for some insight into that adventure-seeking part of his motto, let's hear his story, Grizzly Bears Can Run Really, Really Fast. Come on up, Jim. So my favorite present I got as a kid was a subscription to National Geographic. I know. <laughs> Seems kind of lame. <laughs> More sad, I guess. But I loved it. I loved it. I loved it, loved it, loved it, because it kind of changed my life and got me involved in you know, uh, adventure. And, and I remember as a kid, I read an article about grizzly bears in Glacier National Park. And I decided right then that I had to go there and see them myself. So when I finally had some money, I put together my mission and talked my girlfriend, Barb, into going. And um, so, I did, I, you know, so she was great. She came. I, didn't, I don't know if I, ta I told her that, uh, about my mission. And I don't know if I even told her that there were grizzly bears in the park. So... But she was really, you know, she was great. She was, she was um, totally into it. And we got there, and um, Glacier's an amazing place. And we hiked for 80 miles. We backpacked for 80 miles, and we saw zero bears. And everybody we talked to had seen one, <laughs> um, maybe more than once. Um, so... On our last day, we decided to hike up to one of the remaining glaciers in the park, and the trail goes up, and we hung out up there, and started getting dark, and we were the last ones up there, and we decided we had to leave, and so we're heading down, and the trail is like, there's one trail up, one trail down, there's a cliff on one side, and a, a lake on the other, and a lot of bush. Um, and we got halfway down, and these four guys come running up the trail, all freaked out, and they're like, a grizzly bear just chased us up the trail. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm finally going to see a grizzly bear. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so we, we talked about our plan, and uh, we couldn't stay there. We couldn't walk around. Uh, we had to go down the trail where it was, and we decided to stay as a group. And um, I had read somewhere that, uh, you know, you wear bells uh, to keep safe from grizzlies, and um, I'm not sure what it intended to do. I don't know if it annoyed the bear, but it certainly annoyed me after 80 miles <laughs> listening to it. Um, so, um, so we had a plan, and, and I was going to go last in case the bear flanked us, and I had a bell, so... <laughs> and so, um, but I really want to see this bear, so I'm looking and listening... And there's all this bush. You can see more than 10 feet, and it's getting dark. And then I, know, I discovered something. I was all by myself. Unbeknownst to me, the, you know, the four guys and my girlfriend took off down the trail in a sprint. And I'm like, when was running part of this plan? <laughs> right? And so I'm there alone. It's getting dark. There's an aggressive grizzly somewhere nearby. Um, and I thought something that most people don't get to think, 
that I was food. <laughs> and that I had overestimated my wilderness skills. So I did, only thing I knew is that I started to run, and I caught up to the group, and uh, we didn't see the bear, luckily. And um, we got down to the bottom, we all lived. And so I was talking to a ranger later that night, explaining the whole story, and he said, you know, some of the bears have learned that if they charge you, they will, you'll throw their pack, and they'll, you'll throw a pack at them, and they'll get your lunch. <laughs> and like, I totally get that. That was my strategy in middle school with bullies. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and, so, and so, like, yeah, you know, so, um, but this arguably was the worst bully on the planet, literally. And so, so anyway, after all that, we decided that, hey, uh, we're, we didn't see a bear. We were totally in the mission. Barbara's totally in. We have to go to Alaska, to Denali National Park, where you're guaranteed to see him. So uh, I used some of my student loan money, and we flew to Alaska. I know. What are you thinking? It's a great way to spend student loan money, right? So I flew to Alaska, and uh, before they let you into the park, um, they have to tr- the rangers have to train you in bear safety. And so, um, so going through the course, and they said, well, the first thing you're going to do is you want to avoid having a bear encounter. encounter. I'm like, um, okay, um, that's when, what is that? <laughs> that's when the bear decides to interact with you or your stuff. I'm like, okay. So the first thing you want to do is stay way far away. Okay, makes sense, right? Um, and uh, you want to talk to the bear, explain that you're human. <laughs> okay, okay. Which doesn't make a lot of sense because humans are by far the easiest thing to catch in that park. <laughs> so, okay, so don't, don't, all right. And um, whatever you do, don't run because they'll think you're prey. And they have really bad eyesight and they can't see too far. So, you know, I want to confuse them. Um, and um, so, and, so the, and the other thing is you, you don't want to eat in your tent and you want to use these you know, uh, and you don't want to have a period. I was like, okay, Barb, write that down. <laughs> don't have a period. All right, so then the other thing is you got to put all your food in these heavy bear con- containers they got so they can't dig into it, um, including your toothpaste. And I was like, you know, because they have really good smell, I guess. I'm like, why, what would a bear do with toothpaste? All right. Um, I don't say anything because I want to get a permit. So, uh, and they say, well, the bears have this really good sense of smell, so you're going to do it. And when you poop, you've got to poop way far away because they like poop. I was like, oh, that explains the toothpaste. (laughs) 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 I don't say it. I'm thinking it. (laughs) Um, So if you happen to have a bear encounter, um, what you want to do is you want to talk at the bear, explain that you're human. You don't want to run because if you run, they'll think you're prey, and they can run really, really fast, up to 30 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, like, no way. A bear, 30 miles an hour. Mm, I don't think so. I don't say anything. Um, and so uh, don't run, and, and you can climb a tree, but where you're going, there's no trees because it's tundra. <laughs> I said, why tell us? It's protocol. It's like, okay, don't climb any trees that aren't there. All right. Uh, <laughs> They're way far away. Um, and, um, and I say, well, well, what about bells? And she looks at me like, what do you do with a bell? I'm like, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I don't have to bring that. Um, so they say, okay, so you do all that. You don't run. You, you, and, and, the, and the one thing you don't want to do is you never want to throw your pack. All right, because we don't want to get them too comfortable with uh, human food. You know, I, I guess human flesh is totally cool, but human food, <laughs> they don't want it. So keep that out of the diet. And, and that's the, I'm thinking, like, that's the one thing I know works. So anyway, so we so we said, okay, in case of a bear attack, it's unlikely, but in case a bear attacks you, what you want to do is get really, really small. And I'm like, then what? That's it. 
So, that, so I happen to know that that's the same advice they give you if you're up on top of a mountain in a lightning storm, right? Get really, really small. It's like somewhere they're coming up with this training and they're thinking like, what do we tell them in case of a lightning storm? Ah, they're screwed. Um, <laughs> get small. Right. They're like, okay, what if a bear attacks them? Oh, they're dead. So um, what should we tell them? We've got to tell them something. All right, tell them to get really, really small. Um, so we get our permit and uh, we take off and the second day we're there we see our first grizzly and it's amazing we're high-fiving it's way far away we're all safe you know it's great and then um, uh, we see another bear later with bear with a cub on top of a mountain and we're like sight this is awesome it's an amazing place on our third day we wake up and um, have breakfast and I had a poop so we went way far away and they come back over the hill and no sooner I get back, I look up on top of the hill, and there's a grizzly at the top of the hill about 100 yards away, right where I went. And I'm like, huh, they really like poop. <laughs> right? So I look over at Barb and stand next to me. I go, there's a grizzly. And as soon as I say that, the grizzly comes flying down the, uh, down the hill full speed right at us. And so I'm so standing there in terror going, and the only thing I could think of from that training was, huh, they can really run fast. <laughs> And the bear gets within 10 feet, skids to a stop, flips around, goes back up the, up the hill, and realizes it's chasing a ground squirrel. And ground squirrel's everywhere, and it's chasing a ground squirrel. So it gets up the trail, and uh, the ground squirrel's doing the serpentine evasive maneuver, which they must learn in bear safety course. Uh, <laughs> and drops into a hole, and the bear skids to a stop and sticks his head in the, on the hole. And I look over at Barb and say, we got to go. And she goes, looks at me and says, that was amazing! <laughs> Get the camera! Take some pictures. No, no, we gotta go! So after I took some pictures, the bear gets bored and, and puts her head up in the air and starts to sniff and starts to look down at us and starts coming down towards us in a walk. And I go, Barb goes, I think we should go. I'm like, good plan. So we throw everything in our pack and we take off and about 50 yards away, 50 feet away, and I hear, wait up. We're not supposed to run. And I'll, now at this point, I'm like, okay, all those procedures and guidelines are gone. Everything is on the table. Running, throwing packs, <laughs> giving them toothpaste, everything. And if I was bad, I would have thought, you know, I don't have to run faster than the bear. I just have to run faster than Barb. <laughs> I waited. And she caught up, and we took a brisk walk, and the bear followed us for two miles. And, you know, the bear wasn't quite into it. It was, you know, you could tell the bear wasn't into it. I mean, she was just like, they're going that way, I'm going that way, maybe something will fall out of the back, um, which could be because we're dragging a tent. And so after two miles, we're starting to freak out. We go over a hill, we come down, we look, 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 and the bear's gone. So the bear stopped following us. So we stop, and then we completely freak out, and we get our stuff together, and we pack, and then we hike out to the road. And as soon as we get to the road, a ranger comes by, and we spew the whole story at him, and he listens really patiently, and he just looks at us and goes, I hope you didn't throw the pack at him. <laughs> Thank you very much. Wow, that was one fine adventure, Jim. Thanks for sharing. Saves me the trouble of going through it myself. I feel like I've been there. <laughs> Done that. Good. Knock it off the bucket list. Next up, we have Erica Skoglin. She grew up in New Jersey and now lives in Durham, New Hampshire, with her husband and two daughters. She is very proud of her work as a violence prevention educator for Haven an organization committed to ending domestic and sexual violence and helping survivors in Rockingham and Stratford counties. She is also a puppeteer, close to my heart, who dabbles in theater. In her spare time, she can be found thrift shopping, collecting 50s dresses, and talking to herself. <laughs> Erica quotes a song that says, waiting is the hardest part. She's not so sure about that, but waiting for the phone call that just might change everything is definitely not easy. 
And now, Erica's story in all its difficult and unpredictably funny realness, just to be safe. Come on up, Erica. So I was at the Salvation Army thrift store thrift shopping when I got the call. Hello, we need you to come back so we can take some closer pictures, you know, just to be safe. We schedule magnified mammograms on Tuesday afternoons. So I made the appointment and I went. Um, When I made the appointment, though, I hadn't realized that that meant that all the women who were now in the waiting room with me were all there for closer looks. So there we sat, a giant limb full of women in little gowns who had all been told that there might be something wrong with them, all pretending to read old magazines and avoid small talk, all trying desperately not to look down. One woman exits her closer look, and she recognizes a friend among the waiting. How did it go? The waiting friend asks her. The exiting friend immediately breaks down crying, and she's like, it was terrible, it was the worst, it was so much worse than the original mammogram, it was so painful, and she sits down, she puts her head in between her knees, and she's rocking, and she's sobbing, and her friend is trying to comfort her, and then they call my name, (laughs) and I'm really excited to go in there now. Um, The original mammogram, it wasn't so bad, you know, it's like a vice grip, some smushing, and just when you think they can't possibly clamp it down anymore, they just give it one extra little turn, (laughs) and you kind of expect your breast to just pop and smush on the back wall behind them. Um, The closer look wasn't so bad either, but what was bad was having to crawl back out there on the limb with all the other women and wait, because now we all wait for results. We wait for the um, radiologist to come out and tell us what he saw. So we're all looking at each other, wondering whose life's going to change. The sobbing woman came back out, and she was all smiles, and she's like, it was nothing. And then she shimmies down the limb, and she shimmies down the trunk and goes off dancing into the sunlight, and the rest of us wait. The waiting friend is in the consultation for longer, and so am I. Um, They say it's calcification. Apparently, calcification is worrisome in this case. Usually it's round, mine is jagged, jagged is bad. So they'd like to do a biopsy, just to be safe. Um, They say I have two options. I can either have a biopsy now, schedule it now, or I can wait till my next mammogram, and then they'll definitely want to biopsy it. So I'm like, okay, so I can do it now, or I can wait and do it later. Why would I wait? That just seems silly. So I'm like, okay, let's let's schedule it now. You know, why would I want to sit out on the limb longer waiting? Let's just schedule it. So I get out and I, you know, schedule it, and I get out, and I see that waiting friend still sitting in the hallway. Um, She's on her cell phone, probably calling a loved one. She looks a little bit concerned. So I say to her, I'm like, hey, they found some calcification. (laughs) It's my first time saying it out loud. And she's like, yeah, me me too. Are you going to do the biopsy now or later? And I was like, well, now? Later seems stupid, right? And she's like, yeah, why would anyone wait? I'm like, I don't know. And then we hug, this stranger and I, who we sort of didn't really meet, but we hug because we're both feeling the same thing, a little bit of panic, a little bit of worry, and this new strange kinship as we both still dangle out on the limb. My biopsy is scheduled for a week later. They give me a lot of instructions. Did they say eat breakfast or don't eat breakfast? I I can't remember because, slight rewind, um, When I got my mammogram, I decided that I would be really smart and I would get my annual exam on the same day. I was like, two things I hate doing, get them both out of the way at the same time. That's so smart, right? Yeah. Um, Well, my mammogram, you saw how well that went. Um, My annual, um, well, that wasn't so great either. The doctor felt something. It was like a fibroid or maybe a mass or maybe a shoe. She didn't know. (laughs) So she wanted a closer look just to be safe. Um, For that... I was not supposed to eat. And so for this, well, getting my kids out that morning was a pain, and and I I didn't remember the directions. And so regardless of what they were, I didn't eat, and they were that I was supposed to eat a really large meal. So luckily I got there. The biopsy helper was all prepared. She had, like, mini cans of ginger ale, and she had um, some peanut butter crackers. And so I ate all that, and I felt really all set. So we head into the room, and the first order of business is to get the appropriate part of my breast into screen, because I'm getting another mammogram. Yay! So they're trying to get it into view, and um, normally when you get a mammogram, you sit. I mean, no, you stand. Just kidding. For this, I sat, because it was going to be longer, and and they wanted to, you know, they were going to be sticking stuff in me, so they wanted to make sure I was comfortable. 
So they wanted me in a chair, but they needed me leaning forward so that they could get the part of me into the machine that they needed. But they didn't have a leaning forward chair. So I was in this rolly chair, and then they stuck a bunch of pillows behind my back to facilitate some kind of an awkward lean on this non-leaning chair. And then they start poking and prodding and squeezing and moving and measuring and mushing and lifting and separating, and they can't find this spot. So again, they mush and they smush and they maneuver, and it's still not right. And they squinch and they pinch and they manipulate, and now they think maybe they've got an interview. And it's a really natural position. It's really comfortable. And now they say, you know, take a deep breath. Hold yourself super still in this really awkward position. They're going to ready all the equipment. And so they gather the needles and the tubes, and they numb me up. And so I won't feel this giant syringe they're going to stick in me. And then the best part, because of this awkward position I'm in on the machine, um, they're like, hey, the tube that's going to siphon your breast tissue is going to go, like, right past your face. So to keep me from staring right at all my tissue, they put, uh, the helper holds a clipboard in front of my face. <laughs> Not, that's no joke. I'm like, really? There isn't a better system for this? And I'm like, clipboard? Like, hey, big hospital, that makes sense. Okay. Sounds about right. Now don't move and relax and take a deep breath, and here comes a needle. And then I feel it. This blazing hot poker going into the side of my breast. And I tell them I feel it. And the doctor starts yelling for more lidocaine. And, and I feel that hot feeling you get on the back of your neck. And, like, my hearing starts to get, like, fuzzy. And everything starts to get blurry. And darkness starts to close in. And I know I'm going to pass out. I felt this before when I was little. And I was at the flea market with my mom. And it was way too hot. I got that same feeling. <laughs> and so I announced to the room, I'm like, I think that I'm going to pass out. And... They look at me and they see my skin is turning like a zombie gray and, and they're like, oh no. So they try to lean me back, but I'm still like being held hostage by the machine. So they have to like loosen me and let me out and then they try to lay me back and they take the pillows out so they can lean me back and they, they give me some more ginger ale and some more of the peanut butter crackers and they wheel me in the rolly chair I'm already in across the hall half naked and put me on this couch and they prop up my feet and they keep feeding me more crackers and they put a wet washcloth on my head and, and then they're trying to find my pulse. And the doctor, the helper's like, I can't find your pulse. And I'm like, I'm eating crackers. <laughs> and I'm talking to you about eating crackers, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I have one. But she can't find it, so she needs to call in a search party. And she wants to send me to the ER just to be safe. So I'm like, all right, if you must, I guess. I'm like, let's grab a wheelchair and let's head on down there, right? She's like, no, that's not protocol. See, they have to call 911. And then they have to wait for the paramedics to come from the firehouse. And then they have to load me onto a stretcher. And then they have to bring me downstairs. And then they have to bring me out. And they have to put me in an ambulance. They have to drive around the building. And then they have to bring me into the ER entrance. I'm like, hello? We're currently on the third floor of the hospital. I'm, I'm in the hospital already. So can't I just get a wheelchair? Just, I'll just walk down. Can't I just? Nope. It's not protocol. So cue the alarms and the sirens and the paramedics and randoms with clipboards and stethoscopes and people introducing themselves to me over and over and over again and poking and prodding and asking me all the same questions over and over. And I keep saying, I just felt like I was going to pass out. I didn't, I didn't even pass out. It didn't even happen. I just felt like I was going to, but, but I didn't. And I'm good. And it's really, I, I didn't eat. I was supposed to eat. I forgot. But they gave me crackers, but I guess it wasn't enough. And then a searing hot poker. But everything is good. I don't really need any of this stuff. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll see if it's good. <clears throat> so they load me in a stretcher, and I'm brought downstairs. And then I'm put in an ambulance, and I'm driven 200 feet around the building. And, oh, in the ambulance, they try to get a line on me on both arms, and they can't. Because I, I don't have a pulse, apparently. <laughs> I'm like, I'm still pretty sure I do. But they, again, they can't find it. So I arrive at the ER, battered, broken, embarrassed. And I'm like, your protocols are awesome. It's almost as good as the clipboard in my face. This is really great. <clears throat> so I'm taken into the ER, and they're like, what's wrong? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I almost passed out. I'm fine, really. I'm, I, it was an almost pass out. It wasn't even a pass out. I'm, they didn't numb me. Everything's good. And they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see if everything's good. And then they give me every test under the sun. They checked me for diabetes. They gave me every blood test you could imagine. When they wheeled in this machine to x-ray my heart, I was like, no, no, you have the wrong room. I'm good. I just almost passed out. You don't need to x-ray my heart. And they're like, actually, it's protocol. We did. Um, my heart is fine, by the way. <clears throat> so after about 400 tests, they come back with their diagnosis, which was that I had a vasovagal reaction. I almost fainted. 
(laughs) And so it went. This time, I was at a tiny church thrift store when I got the call. The biopsy that they had done showed DCIS. DCIS is ductal carcinoma in C2, which is a fancy word for low-level ductal breast cancer. It's breast cancer in my ducts. The good news is that it's not traveling because it's in my ducts, but the bad news is that it's still evil. So the same ducts that fed my children are now trying to kill me. So since it's early, they're like, that's great. It hasn't earned its visa yet. It's not traveling. We can get rid of it. (laughs) The prognosis is really good. So I choose to have a bilateral um, mastectomy. I'm like, one needs to go. Let's just get the other one out of there because I don't want to be sitting on the limb with the other one just waiting. That seems silly. So while they're prepping for this, they decide to give me an MRI just because they're like, you know, we want to check the tissue and see exactly what we're working with, you know, just to be safe. I'm like, cool. Um, At this time, my mother calls me to see how things are going. Uh, She's upset that I was trying to pin the whole thing on genetics, which is essentially blaming her. After all, she's almost 80, and, you know, she's still doing really well. So she seemed, you know, she thought that if I was blaming it on her, that was a problem. Now, she hasn't been to the gynecologist since 1974 when she had my brother. Um, She's never had a mammogram. And she thinks if you ignore stuff, then if it doesn't fall off, it's probably fine. So um, the thing is that my grandmother had breast cancer when she was young. My sister had breast cancer when she was my same age. And as I was trying to explain this to my mother, what she said was, well, your, uh, your grandmother also had a lung cancer, and you don't have that, so I guess you're fine. What? Grandma had what? She's like, yeah, she had lung cancer, and then she had breast cancer, and then she had a brain tumor. And since you don't have those things, obviously you are totally fine. Okay, I don't know what kind of logic she was trying to use, but that sounded a little bit weird to me. Um, So this time, I'm at the Goodwill when I get the call. They tell me that it's DCIS, that they found the DCIS. It's pretty extensive, just as they thought. But they also, oddly enough, found a mass in my lung. Sometimes when you do MRIs, we find things that we're not expecting, they say. How oh, funny that my mom just mentioned the thing about my grandmother's lung. Weird. So they schedule more tests and more tests and more tests. Cue the lung biopsy. Now, this time I don't pass out because it was during my bilateral mastectomy, so I was already out. I did, however, get a lovely pneumothorax because my doctor told me that he'd never, ever, ever, ever had anybody have a pneumothorax before, and my body said, ha, <laughs> challenge accepted. <laughs> Um, but I did tell him he was going to have to talk about me forever from now on because he couldn't say that he'd never had a pneumothorax before. And remember that ultrasound that I had had early on? You didn't think that was going to be nothing. It was uh, an itty-bitty, teeny, tiny, 13-centimeter cyst that they found. That's about the size of a baby's head. Um, they got that out, too. Um, the doctor who removed it said, you know, she just wanted to be safe, so she pulled out my fallopian tubes at the same time. Um, now, speaking of new, I also had a new diagnosis after all of this. Now I have lung cancer. Not breast cancer related, just another little twist in a long tail of twists. So my final surgery is my breast reconstruction. They've expanded my chest wall and my muscles and the skin, and now they're going to pop in some implants and I can go on with life. But since it's me, while I'm healing from the breast reconstruction, I feel a lump in my armpit. I'm like, what is that little weird lump? I call the doctor just to be safe. She wants to take a closer look just to be safe. Ultrasound? Hmm. Still looks a little odd. Time for another biopsy. Say it with me now. Just to be safe. This time I'm at Savers thrift shopping when I get the call. The lump is something. It's more DCIS, more breast cancer. And it grew really quickly this time. So now my consolation prize is chemotherapy and radiation and all the other fun things that come with that, including my beautiful new hairstyle. Five surgeries since last May and counting. And I'm still smiling, smiling and climbing down from that limb one day at a time, one branch at a time. And with every vintage party dress I wear, just because, and every henna crown I get painted on my head, I get closer to getting my feet on the ground. In a way, I feel kind of more grounded than I have in a while. I'd love to tell you that I've cut down on my thrift shopping, but that would be a lie. I can tell you, though, that I don't answer the phone anymore when I'm thrift shopping, (laughs) just to be safe. Thanks, Erica. That is another adventure story, and uh, we're going to be rooting for you, climbing down from that tree, feet on the ground, and going forward. Michael Lang's up next. <laughs> 
Michael lives in Durham, New Hampshire, and is one of our ringers here at True Tales Live. He's a writer, musician, and storyteller who recently published his second children's book in the series Draw Your Own Story. And I think that he's got some that he could sell you if you ask him. I'm going to ask him. They're at home. <laughs> That's okay. We'll follow you there. Mike also teaches music and storytelling at the Big Fish Learning Cooperative in Dover. For nearly a decade, he worked as an outdoor educator, leading ropes course programs and wilderness trips. Although Mike has had many misadventures while rock climbing and backpacking, his story tonight is about a time when he was out on more of a metaphorical limb. Its title is The Music Makers. I have no idea what a metaphorical limb you're going to climb out on, Mike, and I'm anxious to find out. Come on up. To the makers of music, all worlds, all times, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. It was the evening before St. Patrick's Day when I took that fateful plunge. No, I did not fall into an open vat of Guinness. <laughs> Thank you for the sympathy laugh. <laughs> this was a very different plunge. See, I was performing as a storyteller in Center Sandwich, New Hampshire, at a place called the Corner House Inn. I was planning to tell some of my favorite stories, stories that I knew could win over an audience quickly, along with some Irish folktales, some Irish music. I also planned, for the first time ever, to share an original song with a group of mostly strangers. As the evening went on and I got to the middle of my set, there was an eerie calm hanging over the room. The fireplace behind me crackled and popped sat on my rickety wooden stool clutching my guitar and started to play the familiar chords, a G flowing into a C, a D, G, E minor, C, D, G. And as the rhythm repeated itself again and again, I began to sing the lyrics that I had written about the world that likely greeted my great-grandmother in the early 1900s when she came through Ellis Island at the age of 15. No Irish need apply today That's the way you want it to be Go and break the promise she made to me She said, give me your tired, your lonesome and lost Yearning and frightened, tempest-tossed You can rest your head on me, fair ashore These words were written upon her door But that sign's been torn down from her door As the last chord faded there was applause, and, and there were a, a few cheers from here and there, and, and there were a few whistles. People, people actually liked it. This was far more than the courtesy that I had been expecting. I didn't really know what to do with that, other than go on with the plan that I had made, but their, their response did embolden me to share another of my original songs at the end of that, the end of that performance. And ever since then, I've been trying to make time for my music, write some more songs, and share them whenever I get the chance. It was several months after that performance, more like a year or two, when I was asked if I'd be willing to teach a music class at the Big Fish Learning Cooperative when it opened in January of 2018. My initial response was, me? Teach music? I, I've, never, I've never taught music in my life. I, I haven't even used sheet music in like 20 years I don't, I don't know the first thing about teaching music. I, I taught myself to play guitar, and I know all of the bad habits and the bad techniques that I use. I don't want to be t passing that on to kids. But then this little voice in the back of my head, it spoke up, and I remember what it felt like to be out on that limb at the Corner House Inn, sharing that song and how, how people actually liked it. And I started thinking about that and thinking, that, well, maybe, maybe I don't have to be an expert in this to, to hang out with a bunch of kids and teach them how to have fun with music. Maybe, maybe I can do that. So I agreed. Well, I've been teaching that class since January, so about four months now. And the most amazing thing happened a few weeks ago with one of my musicians as we were packing up our guitars. And I was asking him how things were going, how's your music, and, you know... 
it's really great. If, if I didn't have my music, I, I don't know where I'd be. I, I, don't, I don't know what I'd be doing. You know, mu music's so special. It's, it's really something. Yeah. Yeah, it really is something. There's nothing in this world like music, I told them. And I remembered all the times that I had talked to my students about a man named Victor Wooden, a musician and a music educator, and how he believes that music is in all of us. And we're all musical people, and you know, there's something to it. They say the first thing we hear before we come into this world is the rhythm of our mother's heartbeat. And that, you know, you ever met a child who didn't like bursting out into song spontaneously or banging on everything within reach as though it was a drum? Maybe, maybe it's just me and my niece and nephew, I don't know. But we are musical people. It's everywhere. And it's with us through everything. Good times, bad times. It's been with us since the dawn of recorded history, and it'll probably be with us until the end. And maybe that's why Carl Sagan decided at the last minute to add an inscription to the platinum casing of the Voyager records, these time capsules that were sent out far beyond the bounds of our solar system, carrying pictures and songs, all of our music from around the world, a sample of life on this planet, our culture, our history, just in case there's someone else out there who finds it someday. And if they do, they'll find an inscription. It came from a little blue-green planet circling a yellow star in the middle of a galaxy. And they'll know that there were people there who reached out to the makers of music, all worlds and all times. The music makers. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed it. Michael. Thanks. I um, have kind of more or less recently embarked upon some music making with the leftist marching band because I've been twirling, but I'm thinking, okay, I'm not getting younger. <laughs> you know, weird, but I'm not. And so <laughs> I um, started playing boom, ba boom, boom, ba boom, heartbeat, boom, the bass drum, which is basically the heartbeat of the band. It's like, if I can't be a twirler, man, I want to be the heartbeat of the band. So I'm with you there. I'm a music maker. Now, Kathy Wolf is coming up. Kathy lives across the bridge in Maine, in Kittery's Foreside, with Tux and Edo, two feline brothers from Brooklyn. She is a storyteller and writer who has written many personal essays and stories, several of which she has shared with us here on True Tales Live. Kathy has also written for the Associated Press, UNH, Dartmouth, and Tufts. Regarding her story tonight, she says sometimes it takes a really bad decision to learn who and what to trust. But if you survive, you can have the rest of your life to put to use what you have learned. One can only hope. Let's hear more about what she has learned in her story out on a limb in the Tinicum Woods. Come on up, Kathy. Everybody has flashbulb memories. These are the memories that are so vivid they never fade. Mine include when I heard President Kennedy had been shot, when I rolled a car on black ice, and the story I'm going to tell tonight, which happened 40 years ago. It was a hot August afternoon, and I was on a very busy road near the Philadelphia airport. I pulled over to pick wildflowers. I got a great bouquet of Queen Anne's lace, black-eyed Susans, and lots of daisies, and put it in the back seat of my car, and then realized I had a flat tire. No problem. I had just come back from my first time out of the country, three weeks in Greece and Israel. And I had spent time in Greece with an old boyfriend and time in Israel with an old high school friend, but I traveled a lot alone. I felt worldly. I felt competent. I felt in control. Only the way you can feel when you're 23 years old. <laughs> it was long decades, obviously, before cell phones, so I just stood there thinking, what am I going to do? I'll change it. But there was no spare tire. My roommate had borrowed the car and apparently had her own flat tire and not dealt with the follow-up of that. 
so I stood there, and a, a semi-tractor trailer pulls off the road. My guy gets out. What's going on? And I told him, and he, he was just about ready to say, I'll help you, reluctantly, when another car pulled up, a low, dark sedan, and a young, thin man got out of the driver's seat, looked the whole thing over and said, no problem, I work at a garage. I can get you a tire real cheap. Just get in my car. There was a look between those two men, and I didn't think about it till later, but the older man, the trucker, just barely shook his head. I grabbed my purse, got in the man's car, the thin, skinny, young man's car, and he took off. We hadn't gone very far when he made a sharp left off of the road into a wooded area. He said, I know a shortcut. We're going down this road. It's a dirt road, and it seemed odd that he knew a shortcut and was going really slow and looking around a lot. And he also was just very nervous. His hands were clutching the wheel. I thought I was just a wired guy. All of a sudden, he turns into a little grassy area. He grabs my arm, and he says, I just escaped from jail. I got a knife. You're going to do what I tell you to. I felt fear, bile, and God knows what else start moving up, and I swallowed really hard. And I said, well, you know, if you're on the run, you don't want to mess with me because I've got syphilis. (laughs) Now, I don't know why in the world I said that. I didn't have syphilis. I didn't have any STD as far as I know. Um, or knew, <laughs> and, and yet I said it, and, and he kind of stopped a minute, and I said, and I've got a card to prove it. <laughs> he said, okay, let me see it. Meanwhile, I'd taken a look around the car and hadn't seen any knife, any gun, or any even crowbars, but that wasn't exactly calming me. So I pulled my, he had to let go of my arm, this arm actually, so I could pull my purse up and look for the card. I'm looking for the car, and I'm kicking off my sandals, thinking I can run faster, and trying to hide with my purse, my hand going for the door. And I opened the door and made this leap, but just as I did, he grabbed me. We both went out of the car. He's on top of me on the ground. I kind of get up. He grabs me again, throws me on the hood of the car, and he's laying on top of me when another car starts coming by very slowly. I'm yelling, help, 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 help. And he has his hand over my mouth and is yelling, she's my wife, she's my wife. And the car keeps going. But he was distracted enough that at that point I managed to get a good kick in and I slid out from under him and I started running after the car, which paced me for a 100 yards, just kept me that far behind. And then it took off in a cloud of dust. I made a sharp right into the woods, sort of did a zigzag going under bushes, you know, through the brambles. The Tinicum Woods is where I was. Um, This is a place that later, not much later, became notorious for the Marsh murders because they had found bodies of three different women there. And the Tinicum Woods was all marsh and brush and dead cars at the time. I stopped under a bush, the biggest one I could find. It was a lot of low stuff, and stayed there for probably 10 minutes trying to catch my breath, trying not to make any noise at all. I didn't hear anything. Finally, I got up. I continued through the woods till I came to a road. A little bit up the road was a convenience store. I went in the store, and I suddenly realized what I looked like. I had on blue corduroy short shorts, and a clingy nylon T-shirt that had pink and blue and white on it. I had mud on my legs, no shoes, uh, prickles, you know, scratches from the brambles. Whoops. A lot of um, little blood streaks. I was a mess. But the guy at the convenience store, I said, I need a phone. I got to call the police. And he looked at me and said, get out of here. We don't need your kind. So I left, rather than arguing. I went on down the road, and there was a sleazy bar. I went into this bar and said, I need to call the police. The guy gave me a glass of water and telephone. And the police came. We went all the way back to Tinicum Woods. Of course, that 
the young man and his car were long gone, but I did find my sandals. I must have kicked them out the door as I tried to escape. Uh, and then the police said, I don't think you want to bother to report this. And I said, what? He said, you'd, you'd have to go downtown, it'd take hours, and it probably wouldn't come to anything. I said, the guy said he'd escaped from jail. He said, yeah, I know. And I realized he didn't believe me. So he helped me get my tire fixed. All the flowers had wilted, and I drove home. I got home and I called uh, the man I'd been dating before I headed off to uh, Greece and Israel. You know, it was the 70s. We all dated a lot of people. And, and he's, he was, the only thing he was worried about was that the coin he had given me to wear around my neck for good luck while I was traveling had been ripped off by this man. So he lost the coin, and he was a little angry about it. Then I turned around and called the man that I had hung out with in Greece, the old boyfriend who had just gotten back to Chicago. And he ended the conversation by saying, well, he didn't rape you, right? I never saw either of those guys again. So what's the take-home from this experience? Don't wear short shorts and a clingy top when you're picking flowers on the side of a busy highway. Always make sure you have a spare tire. Carry a card that says you have syphilis. <laughs> Trust sleazy bars over convenience stores. Choose better boyfriends. All of those are good lessons. But what my real takeaway was, trust your intuition, even when it doesn't agree with your politics. I think I would not have gotten in that car with that man if he was white. He was black, and I did not want to appear to be a racist. And I just ignored the truck driver shaking his head. I ignored the lesson you're taught when you're young. Of course, I'd ignored that before hitchhiking, but I ignored don't get in the car with a stranger. Uh, and I did. I got in the car. Trust your instincts. You have to learn it over and over and over again. And recently I had a much, much less dramatic chance to test that out again. It was just a couple of months ago, and I was in the um, parking lot of the uh, liquor store in Portsmouth's liquor store, the traffic circle. And a large black truck backed into my little Toyota and smashed in the back passenger door. I got out of my car. A guy jumps out. He's got a big red beard. He looks really nice, whatever. He says all the right things. Are you okay? You know, uh, it was my fault. I take responsibility. And I said, okay, I haven't done this before, but since we agree that it's your fault, why don't you give me insurance information? We don't need to call the police. Then I looked at his bumper. Trump, Pence, oh. another deplorable for Trump. And I thought, oh, we're going to call the police. <laughs> but before I actually said that, I thought, wait a minute. What is the political equivalent of racist? A politicist. So go with your instincts. And I did. And he had already called his insurance company and reported the accident by the time I got home and called so you just got to keep learning it. And sometimes when you're out on a limb, it really, really, really can help to trust your instincts. Thank you. Thanks, Kathy. That was a scary story. Well told. Thanks. All right, now we're going to have another maybe less scary adventure. <laughs> We'll see. Uh, Tom Osberg lives in Wyndham, New Hampshire. He came to storytelling by listening to his dad's fisherman friends. When one story ended, it led to another, and another, and another. Stories that drew him in and transported him to places that he could never have predicted he'd go. Now, while sitting at his desk of his day job at Amazon Robotics, Tom is always thinking stories. Over the last year, he's taken the craft of writing and telling stories very seriously. You can find some of the stories and some fine photographic journaling on his blog and website at Tall Tom. 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 Oops, okay. Sorry. It was written here and then it disappeared. It was in blue and blue didn't print. Tom Tall Tales. Tom Tall Tales. 
www.thepeopleshow.com. I'd recommend finding it. You'll see some more of his photos and hear some, um, see some stories that he's written. He also canoes camps, has hiked the Appalachian Trail, and is a hobby beekeeper. All those interests lead me to believe that Tom enjoys a certain amount of risk in the great out-of-doors. Perhaps we'll find out just how much in tonight's story. I promise to be careful. Come on up, Tom. Thank you. I do have one problem I have to confess to. I can't read a book twice. I can't see a movie twice. I, I can't hike the same trail twice. And when I'm bored, I have to find something exciting to do, don't you? Well, I came down to breakfast. It was a long, wet, hot summer. And I came down to breakfast, and my wife was away on a knitting retreat up at the Lakes region. And she'd left a note on the kitchen counter. It read, uh, love you, dear. There's uh, dinner in the fridge. If you could do some chores, that'd be great. Um, and then at the bottom, in bold and underlined, it said, promise me that you'll be careful. I love and cherish my wife. I really do. I use that word, cherish. And, but if I said she had faults, I'd, I'd say she has one fault, and that's worrying too much. So I go off to work, toss that away, and I come home late because no one's home. And it's midnight at this point, and, and I'm walking around trying to figure out what to do, you know. Chores? Power tools? Midnight? No, not a good idea. Uh, vacuuming? No, not my wheelhouse. Um, looking outside, it's kind of dark. There are shrubs I should do. There are limbs I should cut. Limbs out on a limb. I just remembered that out on a limb in the forest, I, in the middle of the spring, several months ago, I had hung a honeybee swarm trap. Now, trap isn't really the right word for it, because what a, what a honeybee swarm trap really is, is it's a box. It's, about, it's a white cardboard waterproof box. It's about a foot by uh, 12 inches, and, and it has uh, five uh, frames of, of wax in it, and it has a, a queen bee pheromone in it, and you put it up in a tree with a rope, um, near like a field with some water. And the hope is, see, in the spring, the hives are growing so fast that they split naturally. And, they, and half of the hive will go off and find some place temporary, more like a temporary home, to stay while it sends out scout bees looking for its permanent home. And what you hope to do is to get out there in the woods in that week or so in the spring and, and let the box down, take those feral wild bees back to your own hive, and then you get your own wild feral bees. And I've forgotten about it for months. So I got my computer out, and I'm an expert online. So online I'm looking and it says, ah, the best time to get honeybee swarm traps down is at night because all the foraging bees are back in the box. And it occurs to me that the other best time to get a honeybee swarm trap down is when your wife is away. Because <laughs> she doesn't worry. So I got all my stuff together, put it in the car, drove to the far side of town, and being a careful kind of guy, I decided I would text my wife what I was doing. I was taking a little hike at one in the morning. <laughs> because I know that up in the lakes region, she had no signal. It's not going to worry her, and I'm careful. So I wander through the woods. I finally find the place in the dark, and there's the box, and I, I tug on the rope real slow. Nothing happens. But being a careful kind of guy, I put my bee suit on anyway and the bee hat and the bee pants and, and the gloves that come all the way up past your elbows, big, thick leather gloves. And I hold on to the rope, and I'm picking at the knot. And I'm picking at the knot, and I can't get the knot because of all the rain. I shake off the glove, and I'm picking at the knot. I can't really see it. I'm trying to do it, and all of a sudden, Aah! this sound is not coming from a pie. I'm like, what is that sound? My, my brain goes into kind of a, a Google neural search. 
Is it, is it some kind of a, an electronic thing? It's not my phone. No, no, no. It's not coming from the ground. It can't be an animal. <laughs> Suddenly, I notice the rope slips right through the gloved hand. It had been running through my hand the whole time, making that sound. I step back just as the box misses my head, hits the ground, rolls on its side, and all these angry bees come crawling out. I froze. But being a careful kind of guy, I brought mosquito netting. I pulled it out of the backpack, threw it over the whole thing, grabbed the whole thing, leaves, and the box in my mitt, picked it up, and it was heavy. It wasn't just bees. It must have been honey and pollen and nectar. It was a whole hive. So here I am, I'm trying to run through the woods, and I'm smashing through branches, and I can't really see, you know, and I lose the trail, and I'm, I'm tripping over logs, and I'm going around bushes, and finally I get back to the parking lot, and I open the car door, and I throw the whole thing, slam the door, and I'm like, I caught myself a feral bunch of bees, and I'm going to do my happy dance. And then I heard this sound. It sounded like an airplane. It was coming from my car. Inside my car, the bees were doing this big circle. Angry bees flying around inside the car. What was I going to do? Well, bee suit is proof from bees, right? So I pulled on the other glove and got in the car. And it was deafening inside the car. And I'm driving home. I'm trying to drive home, and it's deafening. And I'm having to drive slower and slower because I have to brush the breeze off landing on the visor. And I'm driving slower, and now I'm really worried. My mind, I'm thinking, a police officer might pull me over at 2 in the morning. Sir, sir, why are you driving so slow? I can't hear you, officer. (laughs) Sir, roll down your window. No, I don't want to roll down my window. I'm thinking this. Sir, get out of the car. You don't want me to get out of the car. So finally did get home. I had to run across the rose bushes. Sorry, dear. And and across part of the vegetable patch into the woods. And, and, and I did, then I opened the car, rolled it up a, a camo roll, and I, I, I smoked the heck out of the car and sprayed it with sugar water, and they all calmed down. And, and I got them into the hive, and I went upstairs. And being a careful kind of guy, I texted my wife, everything's okay now, mo- <laughs> mostly. <laughs> and I do love her, and I think I listen a little better now than I used to, but... I don't understand why on Saturdays when she tilts her head and her twitches her shoulder, her eyebrow a little bit when I say, dear, I promise I'll be careful. <laughs> Thank you. You ever heard my beekeeping story? No. I'll have to tell you sometime. Yeah, it was an early one. All right, thank you so much to to tonight's wonderful storytellers and our fabulous uh, in-studio audience. You all deserve a hand. Um, We are going to have an interview coming up next, but before we get to that, I have some things to tell you. First of all, if you remember, tonight was an off off night. We were supposed to be here last week. It had to get pushed, but we are now back on track. So our next show will be Tuesday, May 29th, the last Tuesday of the month. The theme is, What Was I Thinking?, uh, I, I believe we have one slot for that, so let us know if you want it. We also have a show coming up on June 26th that we definitely need tellers for. The theme is Neighbors. And we invite you to think expansively about that. It doesn't have to, you know, it can be like your, your next-door neighbor, but I looked up some, some what does neighbors mean to help you. So we have, I found a, a person living nearby a person currently situated nearby, like you have neighbors tonight here, right? Also, um, a person related to you by some kind of bond, and any person in need of one's help or kindness. So, think big, and we'll, we'll uh, hope to hear from some of you that you want to be part of that. After that show, we take our summer break, no July and August anything. Um, meaning no workshop or show. So if you want to be 
on those shows or want to look to the fall to coming in, you can email us at truetaleslive1 at gmail.com. Also, if you are interested in telling a story but you'd like some help, just want our opinion, want to try it out, we do have monthly workshops. They're held here at PPMTV 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth, on the fr well, usually on the first Tuesday of the month. This month, it's, everything's off a little, so it will be a week from today, May 8th, 7.30 to 9 p.m. They're free and open to everyone. And let's see, you can watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m., and Saturdays at 1 p.m., and anytime is video on demand, you can go to YouTube and search for PPMTV True Tales Live, and I promise we'll make that easier in the future. We're getting close. Let's thank some of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. I'm Amy Antonucci, and until our next True Tales Live show, on behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the interview.